Kura Patawita. Welcome to Memories in the Key of Life, where we reflect, dissect, inspect, and give respect to all the moments of joy, frustration, and humor that fill our days. And we do it with a bit of music, and if you're really lucky, a choice chunk of poetry, a very short story, or a bit of juicy pontification. Now, you know, talking to oneself maybe the tip of the insanity iceberg for many people, but for others, it's an art form, an introspective expurgence. I love that word, expurgence. An introspective expurgence we often view as a soliloquy, and there are few who soliloquize well. But you did, in this episode's featured piece called God's Train, a soliloquy you wrote that's about what? Well, I call it God's Train, and this is my third rendition. The first I did as a short comic narrative, the second as an audience participation piece, and this newest version is a soliloquy that was inspired by a People's Light solo performance called The Catastrophist. All three versions are an attempt to articulate my yearning for inner peace and the experience is related to my 40 years of meditation practice that are juxtaposed with the harsher realities of my everyday life. In summary, God's Train is about the discipline of remaining open and present in the here and now, instead of believing in and acting out the stories we all create in our head. But since you've titled this God's Train, I presume you believe she's in control. Do you really believe that? You know, I don't even understand that question. Who who are you referring to? Who is she? God, of course. Uh, who uh, God? God is God is a woman, isn't she? Uh, <laughs> I've, I've always I've always assumed so. Uh, am I am I wrong? Yeah, I think you're wrong about that one. Oh. I do not believe that my soliloquy is about control. It, it's more about mastery. I am working to understand and express the art of living fully as a human being. Um, uh, well, and from what I hear in your soliloquy, you have this sort of special space stashed deep inside. I, I mean, I can feel it, but I also sense a, a kind of a passivity in the chorus lines. Nothing to see, nowhere to go. And also, I decided to sit on the platform and wait and wait and wait for that one special train to pick me up again. What level of active responsibility do you bear for achieving that inner space? The meditation practice that I do is not passive, it's active. And believe it or not, waiting can be quite active. If you are sitting, say, high on a mountain and you are trying to catch the sound of a cougar maybe miles away, you are sitting and listening with all of your attentiveness. You're not just la la la, sleeping and dreaming. I mean, hunting is an active process, but you're sitting there waiting. Mm, okay. I, so I, I can, I... Um, 
so that that active process of meditation is more like a flowing river. There is a lot going on in the meditation practice. God's train is my expressive attempt to describe that personal relationship. As we create, it, whatever we put out comes back to us, whether you get that or not. But I get that. What I put out comes back to me. What you do and create comes back to you. And that's how we learn. That's probably true, especially since karma has crapped on me so so often. <laughs> I tend to believe you're absolutely right. Now, you, you told me once, you've never had a real vacation. Uh, and that's kind of sad, but I'm kind of curious. What's your vacation fantasy? <sighs> I've always fantasized about sailing away out into the middle of the ocean without a phone or an internet connection with no way for anyone to reach me. Um, I, I would imagine myself spending days on end with only the sun, the waves, an open horizon, fully immersed in this feeling of spacious magnificence. Now I just settle for a 30-minute train ride alone from Berwyn to Coatesville, the commute I make frequently between my adult daughter's apartment and my house. Immersed in spacious magnificence, I'm going to steal that phrase. I love it. It sounds so delicious. And, and I'm going to tell you all that the rail ride from Berwyn to Coatesville may very well be God's train. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think I hear it coming down the track now. Once I took a ride on God's train and I felt that blissful motion. I heard this repeating sound like waves in the ocean. Sounded like nothing to do, nowhere to go, nothing to do, nowhere to go, nothing to do, nowhere to go, nothing to do, nowhere to go. Outside time, beyond space, everywhere and every place, the choir of angels singing. Nothing to do, nowhere to go, nothing to do, nowhere to go, nothing to do, nowhere to go. I didn't realize it then that I was in. I was in, I was in, hallelujah, I was in. Then I looked out. And just like that, I was here again in yet another action thriller. Another drama I had written long ago that I was just now acting out. I was back in that old familiar traffic of unfinished business on earth. Drama queen, front and center, stage right, stage left, laughter here, tears there. One last brilliant story of tension and release. Right then and there, I decided to sit there on that platform every day and wait and wait and wait and wait and wait and wait for that one special train that has no beginning and has no end to come back around and pick me up again. I want to ride that one. The one where time ceases and life stories are complete like DVDs. I want to ride that one, where the rapture of now is total nectar and I am enough. 
When I was on that train, I peacefully watched the world unfold outside my window. I was grooving on. Been there, done that. Been there, done that. Been there, done that. Been there, done that. Been there, done Another line I'm going to steal. And where life stories are complete like DVDs. I love that. What would be the title of your DVD? Wake up and experience the truth. <laughs> okay. Well, if we look back through our lives, we all have stories that are like complete DVDs. I'd like to share one of mine with you about a boy who gave me a horse named Carlo. I was born and lived in Puerto Rico until I was 11. This is a story told by the boy who gave me a horse just for one day, but that day has stayed with me for 70 years. The name of the little American boy walking toward me was David, the son of the man who owned La Casa Blanca, the only dry cleaning place in all of Puerto Rico. He crossed the street far down the block when he saw our horse, Carlo, walking behind me, his old cracked hooves clicking on the concrete of the new neighborhood street, each step counting the time when I would not see him again. Tomorrow, this brother of mine, whose big neck I had held and hugged when I needed something to hug, this carriage puller who carried fat maids with their heavy market baskets, would be gone forever. Father couldn't look at me last night when he told me he would have to sell Carlo so we could buy a new horse, one that would make the trip to the market and return quickly. He said some people pass him and Carlo and go to the next carriage in line at the market because they know how slow Carlo is. I knew he was right, but I wanted to tell him that Carlo is a brother from the days when we were a family, but... It's hard to say things like that to a father. Now the little American was coming closer, and I could see how his eyes were filled as mine were when father first brought Carlo home. Nobody looked at Carlo like that now, so the look stopped me for a moment, as if the boy saw Carlo the way he was before. He was almost my age, just a little younger, and when he stopped in front of me, I could see he wanted to touch Carlo, but was afraid to say anything. I reached for his hand, and when he gave it to me, I put it on Carlo's quivering neck and stroked it along his big forehead. The boy wanted to know if it was really my horse. I nodded, and he smiled while running his hand over Carlo's soft nose, and I knew then that the boy must have Carlo, and Carlo must have him, if only for one night, if only to share the dreams I once had, if only for the sake of having another brother who would carry with him, wherever he was, the memory of Carlo and what he meant to both of us. Fear jumped into the little American's face when I asked him if he wanted Carlo. He was afraid I was kidding and could not stand to be played with like this. I understood. No, I said I wasn't kidding and asked him again. 
This time he nodded quickly, and I handed him the bridal rope and watched his eyes try to take all of Carlo into himself, trying but failing to own him all in one look. I watched him only for a few moments while he stood there with the bridal rope in his hand, Carlo towering over him, and then I walked away without turning back. The boy would walk, and after a moment of hesitation, Carlo would follow, perhaps looking back at me. I was sure the boy would look back with each step, moving down the new neighborhood street of big houses to the one on the corner, next to the empty lot where his mother would be waiting inside in the cool, dark, trying not to scold the maids. I remember in his front yard there was a large tree that spread over half the lawn. That would be where the boy would take him, tying the bridle rope to one of the low branches, thinking hard of a, a new name, a right name, a name so powerful with magic that his mother and father would know right away that Carlo and their son could never be separated, a name that would seal their brotherhood, shielding their dreams from everyone. His mother would not believe he had a horse in the front yard, but he would pull her to the front of the house where she would stand gaping at Carlo standing on the manicured lawn under the tree. He would tell her Carlo was given to him by a boy down the street. Right away, the words to break him would be on her lips, but she would hold them there, waiting, perhaps making small tentative sounds to the boy whose eyes filled with every question while he waited, afraid, knowing he had not yet picked a name. Outside, the boy would touch Carlo again and again, learning how to speak to him, discovering the words, animals that size, with a heart like Carlo's answer to. Seeing the flies, the sores, the back slung low, the saliva dribbling from Carlo's mouth, the matted mane, the mud crusting his hooves. She would, she would cluck a warning every time her son got within a foot of the horse, afraid it would bite or kick or give him a strange disease, perhaps even more afraid he would get dirty in such a way that her husband, with his dry-cleaning plant, would never be able to get their small son clean again. I could see his father finally arrive, slowing the car at the curb, his face turned toward the yard, not at all sure there was a horse tied to the tree there. Slowly he would come out of the car, enter the gate, pause for a moment to make sure it, it was a horse. Inside, the father would kiss his son, and without asking, the boy's dreams would spill all over him in a rush of words that weren't sentences, just pieces of dreams that danced out of his eyes faster than he could tell about them. The father would listen, and when the boy stopped to catch his breath, he would go to his wife and speak to her in quiet whispers. The son would demand answers. We, we can keep him in the field, father, he would say, pleading. In the meantime, I had walked home. Father had made dinner, and I would have to find the right time to tell him that I gave Carlo to the little American. If Mother had been alive, he would probably have gotten very angry, but a sadness that goes deep into him now makes him see things more slowly with a patience that is sometimes painful for me to watch. Later tonight, before dawn, 
I will have to come back to get Carlo, but for now, I am sure the boy is going to the field next to his house where he will fill an old bucket with grass, watch his horse's head fill the bucket, eating all the grass in a few seconds. At night, he would be sent to bed where his window looked out on the front yard. He would see his horse painted by the full moon, covered in pale velvet shadows, and perhaps Carlo would raise his head to look at the boy, and looking at each other, the boy would see his dreams again in the mystery of Carlo's eyes. The little American would finally tire and lie back on his bed, dreaming of the first morning sun, seeing himself rush outside to greet his horse with his new name, the right name that would keep him and the horse tied to each other forever. God's Train and a story about a horse named Carlo couldn't be more of a jarring juxtaposition, perhaps an apt subtitle for this episode, and our listeners are the kind of people who appreciate jarring juxtapositions. You guys don't travel a straight line, do you? Comments Mike Resnick from Springfield. I never know what to expect here, adds uh, Tina McLeod in Erie. And finally, you guys challenge and disturb, and I always look forward to it, writes Sue Langton in Baltimore. So, if y'all like being challenged and disturbed, drop us a line at memories in the key of life. All one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. And if you don't, well, so be it. All that matters is that we love what we're doing, how we're doing it, and we're having fun. So if you are too, visit again, and don't forget, your memories are in the key of life. When I was on that train, I peacefully watched the world unfold outside my window. I was grooving on, been there, done that, been there, done that, been there, done that, been there, done that, been there, done